You're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Kokoroi Hawkins, Coming up. There was a fund of about $50,000 that was promised to a group of women doing handicrafts in his district. The former Tonga Prime Minister and the current Internal Affairs Minister lose their parliamentary seats. It's very difficult for nurses to access postgraduate care. This really will influence the quality of care that can be given to patients. Doctors Without Borders start their first Pacific project providing healthcare support to Kiribati and Pacific governments are urged to prioritise water and sanitation solutions. Two Tongan MPs, one the former Prime Minister and the other a serving Cabinet Minister, have lost their seats in Parliament. Former PM Pohiva Tuyonetoa and the Minister for Internal Affairs Sangsta Saulala have been convicted of bribing voters during the election campaign period in November last year. Tuyonetoa lost his election petition on Friday and Saulala's election to the Tongatapu No. 7 People's Representative seat was declared void by the Chief Justice today. RNZ Pacific's Don Wiseman spoke with our correspondent in Tonga, Kalapi Mwala, about the cases. They were uh, petitioned or charged for bribery during the election uh, campaign, and the Supreme Court found them uh, guilty. Uh, the former Prime Minister of Tonga, Tui Onetoa, Pohiva Tui Onetoa, and then uh, another uh, representative who is currently a minister in the cabinet, Seng Saulala. The nature of the charges was that they were giving gifts or making promises to people in their constituency to influence them uh, to vote for them. And uh, that's basically the, the charges, and the Supreme Court uh, found them guilty. Are you able to just give us a bit more detail on the nature of the, of the crimes? Well, let's, let's take the former Prime Minister, Tuanitoa. Uh, During his campaign, uh, there was a fund of about $50,000 that was promised to a group of women doing handicrafts in his district. Uh, The announcement was was given by the uh, Minister of Finance, the former Minister of Finance. And the interesting thing is that uh, when Tui Onetoa was questioned, in the court case, whether he knew about the funding, uh, he denied it. And then the the uh, plaintiff showed a video in, in which he was uh, happy, clapping hands during the announcements of, of the funding being given to the women. So uh, it was a, a, a very blatant, uh, outright uh, breach of the rules or the act concerning the election. Uh, not only that, but there were also gifts that were given, monetary gifts, gifts with food items that were given to people during the election to influence them in uh, in voting for them. That applied the same thing, the giving of gifts, gifts applied uh, to Mr. Sengstar Saulala as well. What is the reaction from Tongans to this news that a man who, until a short time ago, was the Prime Minister, has been dumped like well, this? Well, the reaction, uh, very strong reaction, basically, you see, he, he lost his, the prime ministership and just made it to parliament uh, because there were uh, the trust. Uh, he had lost the trust of, of quite a, a lot of people. And so 
it was uh, it was uh, a shock to a lot of people that it finally came to court. Uh, but uh, people had already known that there was something going on, something was wrong with the former prime minister. It's rare in Tonga, isn't it, for MPs to be petitioned by the other candidates and then for them to lose seats. This hasn't happened very often. No, the, uh, the last case that it happened was the election of 2014. There is a Mr. Edward Labulabu, who is, by the way, currently serving a jail sentence for fraud. And he was the deputy chairperson to the political party started by the prime minister, the former prime minister, Tuyone So that was the, the last case uh, that was taken to court. But yes, you are right, it's rare still in Tonga that these uh, charges of bribery during the election is being brought to, to court. Uh, Don, there are seven cases in total that are at the Supreme Court. Three of those cases have uh, had rulings, and there are four more. They are expecting the rulings to come out this week. Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, have started their first Pacific project in Kiribati, working with the government to identify and address gaps in the country's health system. The project was initiated last year to prepare the country for an outbreak of COVID-19, particularly in the area of critical care. Joining me is Alison Jones, MSF Medical Coordinator, who is part of the initial exploratory team to Kiribati, looking at what assistance would be most useful. Kira, and welcome on Pacific Waves, Alison. Maybe as your organisation is a relatively new player in the Pacific, could you start by explaining a bit more about it? So MSF... Um also known as Doctors Without Borders, is the English name, is an independent organisation. And that's relevant for a couple of reasons. One is that the funds are independent. More than 97% of the funds come from independent donors like you and I. Um, And the second thing is we're not affiliated with governments or church groups, for example, where we're independent. And that really allows us to have a very needs focused response. So we really look at the needs of the population and respond to the needs without having to to work under any rules or guidelines from from governments or or any other organisation. We've we've, um, known a lot about the medical issues in Kiribati for a while. So I thought Maybe let's start with uh, how you guys got involved. So we actually received an invitation from the Minister of Health from Kiribati to the office in Australia asking for some support for preparedness and response for COVID, considering that there there was the concern that when the borders open in Kiribati that there might well be some transmission, some positive cases coming in, and acknowledging some of the challenges in Kiribati around um, technical expertise in in, uh, specifically for critical care cases. So the Ministry of Health asked for some support um, to see if MSF might be able to to come and offer some support during this COVID period. So this was last year. COVID struck them before you got there. How how did you rework your plans given that situation? Yeah, so actually what we did is we we decided with the Ministry of Health to to have a small team of, of three really to do a bit of an exploratory mission to understand where the gaps were, where the ministry and the clinicians felt that the best support was should be aimed. Um, but we went in with a, a small team that included actually an intensive care doctor and a critical care nurse. 
acknowledging that if there was a surge when we were there, that at least we'd be able to be useful immediately. Um, and certainly from the information on the ground from the clinicians and the ministry was that, you know, this is the gap around critical care support. Um, the South Pacific community had been supporting during the first wave, but certainly if there was another wave, this would, would be a gap that would uh, be of most value for MSF to support. So when we did go in, we, we aimed to, to do an explow mission and understand where the gaps were, but enable us to transition immediately into a, a project and offer support. Right now, what is, what is the team support on the ground? So we have um, an intensive care doctor and a critical care nurse um, on the ground there at the moment, and we're going to expand the team. So we have a GP and also a logistician going in in the next couple of weeks. And the idea with that is also, obviously, we've been asked by the Ministry to support for COVID preparedness and response. But clearly, the, the Ministry of Health has acknowledged that there are other needs and that, that maybe that MSF could offer some support around some other needs. There's obviously a high burden of disease related to communicable disease, but also non-communicable disease, high levels of diabetes um, and heart disease that makes you know, treating patients quite complicated. So we're also aiming to look at other needs, discuss with clinicians, community, and decide with the ministry if there's an added value for MSF to expand activities past the next few months in the longer term. When we heard that COVID uh, got to Kiribati, we were just thinking like this would be nuts because the po- population density, you know, poor healthcare. From what you saw, how how bad was was that first wave, and and are things under control? Yeah, things seem things look like they're under control. I mean, actually, that you know, there is some more preparedness to do to make sure that if there is another surge, that really appropriate actions can be taken, and the staff feel really prepared. But the first wave went surprisingly well, you could say. I mean, there were a lot of people infected. As you say, the population density on the main island is very high. I think the estimate is something like 70% of the population on the main island might have been infected. There were over 3,000 cases, but there weren't the numbers of critically ill um, patients that were expected, actually. I mean, it was it, lucky it was Omicron, so you know, less severe COVID disease. Um, And of course, the workforce on the ground is amazing, committed, flexible, you know, adapted brilliantly to to the needs, considering the resources at hand. Um, And there was, you know, quite a lot of support as regards equipment sent in from from different stakeholders and and governments. Um, So the first response was, you know, really well done, considering the the, uh, resources on the ground. Um, and I think one of the fears among the clinicians and the ministry now is, you know, if, if it's a more dangerous variant, the, the concern is that it, it might not go as well as the first, the first wave and that the, the clinicians really want to be as prepared as possible um, if, if things are worse in the future. You mentioned, I, I'm seeing that as well as the stuff you're doing, that there are additional gaps that, you, that is mentioned. Yeah. What, what are some of those, those other health issues that you feel um, MSF could help with? Well, there are a lot of challenges, of course, in in Kiribati and and many of the small Pacific islands where you have these huge distances, especially Kiribati, where there's massive distances between the islands. So transferring critically ill patients, recognising critical patients that need referrals, the scarcity of 
doctors that have had postgraduate experience because it's quite difficult to access postgraduate clinical experience for nurses and doctors in Kiribati. So there's, there are lots of challenges. And on top of that, you have the issues related to high burdens of infectious diseases like TB and leprosy, uh, diabetes that makes even you know, fairly straightforward pregnancies quite complicated, actually. So midwives have mentioned this to us that diabetes, you know, makes things very complicated. So there, there are lots of issues around access to healthcare because of the distances, the transport costs, and accessibility, and then high burdens of disease. So there's lots of challenges, and I, now it's it's the time in the next couple of months to really discuss with the the population, the communities. The, the clinicians, health workers, doctors and nurses in the Ministry of Health, which parts of this MSF might have a, a, an added value in, in working towards to try and assist in, in strengthening some of these services. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time, Alison. I really appreciate it. Karoy, thanks. Lovely to meet you. Almost half of the population in the Pacific still lack access to basic drinking water and sanitation facilities. According to the Pacific Community, or SBC, water hygiene in the region is decreasing and there is mounting pressure on Pacific leaders to provide villages and households with clean drinking water. This is the first in a Talanoa series focusing on water issues in the Pacific, which are important given the adverse impacts of climate change, such as at increasing the risk of more frequent and severe natural disasters going forward. RNZ Pacific reporter Alicia Foon spoke with the Director General of the Pacific Community, Stuart Minchin. 45% of the population in the Pacific still lack access to basic drinking water facilities. Um, and around 70% of the population uh, don't have their basic uh, sanitation needs uh, met. Um, So, uh, you know, access to to toilets with, with, uh, you know, running water to to wash your hands afterwards, for example. Um, So uh, this is a big issue in our region and has many um, negative impacts uh, health-wise, and uh, and in other ways as well, you know, in, in places where there's no uh, access to, um, you know, basic uh, clean water, you know, from a tap, people have to uh, uh, walk, you know, to extract water from, from streams and wells. Um, uh, often it's the children that get and the women that get that job and that interferes with education and a whole range of other issues. So there, there are flow-on impacts that have big implications for development in the region um, when people can't have their basic need for uh, clean water and, and um, you know, uh, toilet facilities available um, in, you know, in the region as a whole. We, we're the lowest um, uh, developed uh, region in the world in, in these terms. What areas in particular are most affected? The issues are primarily felt in rural and uh, outer island communities. So, um, you know, in, in, and there's no doubt that PNG uh, has has a big issue because they've, uh, they've got a lot of the population in the region, and a lot of them are, are, are rural uh, population, and that has some real impacts. Um, look, there, there is a lot of work going on in the region, but it's not keeping pace with the, the need. And, you know, PNG's been doing a lot of work. 659,000 people gained access to basic sanitation over that period, but 
659,000 of 3.1 million. So that means that there's 2.44 million new people that do not have access. Um, so this is the challenge. There's, there's genuine work being done, but at the scale at which it is happening and the uh, speed at which it can be rolled out is not keeping track with the need. And um, PNG really needs dedicated uh, and focused kind of uh, investment around this. Some of the things we've done recently, because of course we've been limited, uh, as I said, both in terms of resources and uh, access um, over the last couple of years, but some recent examples of things that were done after Cyclone Yasa um, hit uh, Fiji, um, the the uh, Fiji government asked us to to help uh, with a, the, the village of Yaro on Kia Island, and Yaro had um, uh, basically their water supply system had been destroyed by the cyclone, which was basically reliant on uh, rainwater and uh, capture. Uh, so we worked with uh, the Fiji government to explore options for groundwater uh, extraction for the community, um, and uh, we were able to to drill two boreholes um, with uh, which allow 20,000 litres a day of um, fresh water uh, to be piped into the community. Um, and individual villages uh, have paid 10 Fijian dollars per person to run taps into their homes. Um, um, and there was some recent work done that found that, you know, that had a positive Im impact on education outcomes as uh, the uh, children uh, and not not having to fetch water and um, and they're able to make it to uh, to school on time uh, and and engage and it's also had an impact in reducing the prevalence of skin sores and diarrhea in the community. So that's one example where you know a, 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 a direct um, interaction like that, finding uh, an alternative water supply and providing access to that can have um, impact far beyond just giving people the water. How do we respond to these issues and what action needs to be taken? Strengthening leadership on water and sanitation, uh, increasing um, support to local capacity building for resilience, investing in evidence-based decision-making and uh, harnessing advocacy for change, coordination and uh, effective frameworks for action. So. One of the big challenges here, of course, is that uh, water and sanitation, as I said, is such a huge challenge. It has impacts on other areas, but it often doesn't get the same um, focus uh, from um, from uh, both the leaders in the region and uh, internationally from um, the donor community as uh, as some of the, if you like, more uh, obvious um issues uh, like uh, disaster resilience and uh, and climate change at the moment but um, it is it is uh, an underpinning um, uh, resilience to all of those issues so the oceania region uh, in terms of uh, access to water is is um, is below sub-saharan africa uh, you know at 57 percent and um, whereas most other regions of the world including Latin America, Asia, uh, North Africa, Central Asia are, are above 90% access. So the, the, the only ones below 78%, uh, which is the world average, uh, are Central and Southern Asia at 72% and Sub-Saharan Africa with the same numbers as, uh, as Oceania. 
If you'd like to listen to and read more about water issues in the Pacific, keep up with this series on rnzi.com. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Mothemanda. <laughs>